I, as a director, I have the benefit of sitting at the back of the theater during a show. I sit against the back wall, wherever there's a chair, you know, it's always at the back. At a certain point, I don't watch the show. I watch the audience. Collectively, you'll see them have the same physical response. They'll sit back in the chair, shoulders will go down, the hands will like go into their lap, like their heart rate becomes similar within 20 minutes. But the hope is that they're going to gain empathy. And hopefully, if the show's written well, they'll learn something. Welcome to the Heroic Minds Podcast, where we discover how to get out of our own way, unleash the full capability of our mind, become the hero of our story, and a hero for other people. From an evolutionary perspective, we've evolved to manage threatening encounters. I do everything in my ability to help them, but they make the call. We have to do it in a way that doesn't just assume that going faster is going to be the cure-all. When you suffer and then you come out of it on the other side, you stand a little taller. Your voice doesn't shake anymore. Your eyes are always up. Sorry to depress you guys. Self-doubt is par for the course. It's just how you choose to deal with them, react to them, or not react to them. Uh, A little tough love goes a long way and high expectations also goes a long way. But the more you expect of someone, the more they'll do. I have to keep moving forward. No good comes from going back. I don't need red tape. I'm not into rules. I'm not into regulation. I'm just going to do this. Welcome back to the Heroic Minds Podcast. On today's episode, we have David Connolly. David Connolly is the Associate Artistic Director of Drayton Entertainment, one of Canada's most successful not-for-profit professional theatre companies. Before that, Right after graduating from his musical theater and performance degree from Sheridan College, David became the only amputee to perform on Broadway. This incredibly exciting and successful career began with the amputation of both of his feet. We will get into this in the episode. Now for the screen, David has directed and choreographed several series for CBC, as well as projects for CBS, NBC, ABC, PBS, and he has collaborated with artists including Katy Perry, Andrew Lloyd Webber, Elton John, Sarah Jessica Parker, Katie Lang, Patti LaBelle, Sarah Brightman, and many others. David has directed concerts and shows for organizations across North America, the United Nations being one of them. What began with Shriners Hospital, turning a broom closet into a nursery because his mom would not take no for an answer that they could not care for him, turned into a journey of never taking no for an answer of powerful storytelling through the arts that continues to change people's lives. In this episode, we talk about David going to auditions, which he nailed, and never telling anyone about his physical differences. We talk about the power of being present and the simple two-step approach in how to get there. We talk about how a leader's job is to limit the fear and discomfort in their group. And of course, lots more in between. I think most importantly, one of the most powerful parts of this podcast, which you briefly heard in the introduction, is just the impact that David wants to make on his audience and why he wants to make that impact and how making that impact is able to give him purpose and meaning every day in what he does for a living. I think it's it's an extremely important message, especially at this time during COVID-19 where things are changing and we need to find that purpose and meaning in what we're doing. Uh, David gives an incredible explanation for, for what it is for him that has has given him that purpose and meaning and the opportunity that he has found in his work. Uh, so I, I think you're going to enjoy this episode. It's an amazing one. We even get to learn a little bit about theater, which we haven't talked about on this podcast before. We're going to hop into this episode in a second, but before we have to give a shout out to our friends at True Local. 
True Local provides you with high-quality, locally-sourced meats, vegetables, and fruits. When you order your box of True Local, everything shows up individually packaged on dry ice, so everything stays nice and cold, and you throw it right into your freezer. You pull it out, again, in the individual packages whenever you need them. There's no hidden fees, no hidden costs. You decide exactly when you want this box to show up with exactly what you want in it. True Local is an incredible Canadian company that puts a... Here's the kind of company True Local is. They will put a handwritten note in every box so that you get a personalized letter in your box. I know, I don't know how they do it, but it's amazing. Again, they're Canadian, and they're also offering a discount code. So you can use the code HEROICMINDS25, all capital letters, to get $25 off a regular size box and $10 off a personal size box. So check them out, truelocal.ca. Alrighty, let's get to this episode. I was born with a congenital defect, they called it. We're moving away from that language now, which is really positive, but in my time it was called that. And um, it meant that my lower legs were useless and couldn't bear weight really. So I was told I would spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair. Um, and a lot of people were fine with that diagnosis, except my mother. (laughs) Um, she long before the time of any kind of, um, you know, social connection, uh, cyber social connection, uh, with no evidence to prove that her instinct was right. Um, just knew that that wasn't my destiny. And so started to seek an answer to, to have me not spend my life in a wheelchair. And it took longer than you would think, because again, you know, we're just dealing with word of mouth back then. This was 1967. So um, eventually I'll, I'll truncate the story a little bit. She found the Shriners hospital in Montreal and um, they had, not admitted infants at the time they were dealing with like age three and four and above but she knew that of all of the places and all of the doctors she had visited this was the answer she she saw the results of the work they were doing and knew that um it had to happen and so she basically made an ultimatum to the doctors that she visited there who rejected me at first and said well i'm not leaving so figure it out it is, is in, in her sweet way. She said, I will sit in the lobby until somebody figures this out. This is the only place that holds any hope for my boy. So she did, she just went to the lobby. <laughs> it's um, and they figured it out. So I became the first infant ever to be admitted into the hospital. They made a broom closet into a nursery and somebody went and bought a crib and somebody was like, okay, this, ladies in the lobby and her kid needs us. So let's figure this out. And so, um, they've since of course changed all of those, you know, many, many babies have now been admitted, but I was the first and spent, uh, due to the severity of, of what had to happen, um, spent three and a half years there, um, uh, without going home, just, uh, there were 30 something surgeries and they took, they amputated one foot first and then the other and lots of things. And when I was, f- and then I could go back and forth for a couple of years. And when I was five walked for the first time and, um, haven't sat down since. <laughs> 
So you've walked for the first time at five years old? On two legs. Yeah. I had one leg and a brace for a while. Um, but they didn't, they couldn't guarantee the development of the leg that they were trying to save. So, um, again, my parents had to make the decision to, uh, either amputate, they say if you amputate before three and a half years old, the, the memory of it is, is um, not as traumatic. And so they decided to amputate the second one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, I was reading some Joseph Campbell yesterday and there were the lines of, if you're, if you're moving along a clear path, then it's probably someone else's path. And <laughs> it very much sounds like you were, and your mother, of course, were able to say, hey, we're creating our own path here and we're going to get this done somehow, some way. And before we get to deciding to, to dance, you know, are there specific characteristics that you can, that you look back on now where you realize this, these, you know, this is the most important thing my mother taught me. This is, the, this is a pivotal moment, a catalytic moment in my childhood. Was there anything specific? Because hearing you speak now, but then also looking at some of your other work online, it seems like she was a pretty incredible woman. She was a force. She is. She remains a force. Um, all that whole story I just told, I had nothing to do with. You know, like I'm a narrator in that story. I had, I was, I was being, you know, carted places <laughs> without language. It, I spoke French when I came home only because I had spent so much. I didn't know any English when I arrived home at, at five years old. So, um, so all of that uh, heroic that story. Is, was out of my hands. I think, um, I think that the thing that comes up for me is intuition. It, you know, her, her intuition. I think what it taught me was to trust your gut, to trust the fact that even though your family and the church and the community and your family doctor, everyone is saying, leave him alone, leave him in the wheelchair. And her intuition was, and there's nothing wrong with staying in a wheelchair. Do not get me, you know, wrong. Um, like wonderful lives are led there. She, she uh, just wanted to um, uh, open, I guess, possibility. And it was through her instinct that allowed her to do that. Nothing else, no evidence, no experience. So, that I think is what I take away from that story is just to continue to trust my gut. I'm going to ask a, a fully loaded question here and try and take this one step further. Do you know, do you have an idea of where that comes from? Because I feel like that intuition she had, you've also had, it seems like. And I wonder where, maybe even in your point of view, where that intuition comes from. You know, you said without the research, without experience, there was an intuition. Well, we all have it. Every human has, uh, and everybody calls it different things. Everybody calls it, you know, a, an inner voice or yeah, gut feeling, or some people call it God. Some people call it, you know, like a third eye, whatever, you know, like parents lift cars off children. And that, like all of that um, is an X factor kind of mystical something, um, that we all have access to, but it is a frequency, I think. And we need to really work, especially now, at dialing into what that frequency is um, and not having it be, uh, you know, not being distracted from our, our true nature. 
I think we're going to, this whole conversation, I feel like it's going to revolve around that. And, and one thing you said in the video I was watching of you is that as you grew up, you start to realize, okay, you know, I think dance is something I want to go into, uh, performing, acting, regardless of your situation. And one thing you had said was you weren't trying to escape your legs necessarily. What did you mean by that? Mm. Well, I think that, uh, I think our calling is our calling. And there's no, there's no boundary to that. It's not geographical. It's not socioeconomic. Um, I mean, it can be both of those things, but I, I think if, if, you know, we just finished a four day spring break boot camp for kids, you know, Broadway boot camp, and we saw 96 kids come through that program in four days from all over Ontario. And, that it, it, you know, they're in a basement and outside the window are 150 cows, you know, or, or they're like, what town are you from? Well, it doesn't really have a name. We're like on a crossroad between this and that. And we're about five miles north of this. And, you know, and like, they're obsessed with musical theater. They have show posters in their bedroom behind them. And like, why, why, why is this 10 year old singing a song from Hamilton? And so like, I ask him and I'm like, Oh, are your parents like music theater? He's like, no. Like, okay. So that just like lets me, you know, affirms my belief that, that we are, you were called to hockey, like we're called to whatever we're called to. Um, and so me having no feet didn't, wasn't a barrier in my mind of like why that particular thing, why, um, storytelling, I guess, at its root was important for me. It could be argued that, um, I was looking for a healing art to help others. I didn't know that at the time. Um, I feel that pretty strongly now um, that I wanted some way to give back because I was so conscious so early of um, the, the, the generosity of the people who helped me. And uh, ultimately it has become an, a vehicle for me to, to repay them. On your journey there, you made it clear that when you went to audition, you never told people that you had any type of physical difference. What was your approach to that? Because when I when I heard that initially, it made me think you were trying to leverage the the idea of the underdog. And I don't know if that's true, but I'm curious. What what was the reasoning on on not saying, "Hey, just so you know, this is what I went through as a young child." You know, you didn't even disclose that. Hmm. Mm, a layered answer. One of the layers is that there was no and remains no role modeling. There's, there's no um, disabled representation on stage. And so I couldn't point to someone and say, but look, they did it. There was not one example of someone for me to um, calm the fear of a producer, director, creative team uh, that I would be okay. And so that's part of it. Second part of it, I didn't want to be uh, hired or fired, like hired or not hired as a result of that. You know, I didn't want them. I didn't want uh, a, a trophy or a medal or anything. I just wanted to get it on the merit of my talent and nothing to do with um, kind of what was an invisible disability at that point, really, because I could hide it. Um, and then the third 
part was that I couldn't control the narrative and very, and now we can't because we have social media and we can, you know, have our voice, but this was a long time before that. And I was in a show in between my first and second year of college and the national Enquirer ran a story on me that was entirely not true. They said I had gangrene and that I lived in a bucket. Like it was um, not good. And at that moment, I just said no to media. I was like, I, there was a, a very, like, I, I would not talk to them about it for, well, a decade, probably. It was never a part of any shows that I was in. I, they would come to me and ask if I'd want it. And I'm like, mm. but that changed that morphed. Uh, and then I, by then I also had some experience under my belt that I could point to and say, look, I did this show for four months. I did that show for three months. I did like, there was never a problem. There, it isn't an issue. And by the time the story started to get out about this kid with no feet, um, I had a track record. Today, I know this from, from the head injury space, which is an area that I, I know quite well is it is so powerful to be able to talk to someone not even in the medical space, but just someone that has been through it, right? That is so powerful. Oh, okay. That person had a concussion. They're okay now. Ah, I can drop my shoulders a little bit. There's hope for you. You didn't have that. You couldn't look to someone to your left or to your right or someone on Twitter that, that also is missing their feet and doing what you dream of doing or are doing presently. That is, that is outstanding. That, that is amazing. Could you remember back so moments where self-doubt crept in, what, what did you turn to? Because you didn't have Twitter to go to and say, okay, there's these, this group of people, these mentors that are doing something similar to me. Do you, did you have something you turned to that was able to pull you out of that? I don't know if I can do this. <clears throat> well, that's interesting. Uh, what it brings up for me in this moment is that, um, it, it maybe wasn't healthy, like that there was maybe a level of denial that I was in about having to live this secret life that wasn't helpful ultimately um, and needed some unpacking later on about uh, how to how to re-enter the community that you're talking about in a in a healthy positive um, I, I, I was, I've always been an ambassador for the War Amps Child Amputee Program, and I've always been an ambassador for um, Shriners Hospitals. And so I would go wherever they wanted me to, to say whatever they wanted me, you know, to speak from my heart. And um, But outside that, there was a, a wall um, that that uh, took some time and, and help to dismantle um, about... Uh, yeah, just because, because secrets aren't great, you know, <laughs> they're not great. And so, um, the support system grew over time. It what it's not a fairy tale story of like me always having like a great perspective on everything that happened and why it happened. And, you know, it, it, uh, I don't want to, I don't ever want to have that be my, uh, story that that like I never had a problem and it was always like I was always so well adjusted and like that's not true. Um, we all as humans struggle every day. 
I, I love what you're saying. And it relates to, I, I've had this conversation many times as I be, continue to reflect further. And I think it's so healthy to have these conversations. And one of the, one of the concepts I reflect on is, okay, I, I was lucky enough to be healthy and be approved to go back to play. And I'm not trying to compare stories, comparing this mindset. And I look back and I think, but it was from a place of thinking hockey was everything. Mm. Right. So there, similar to what you're saying is it wasn't always this healthy point of view that allowed me to do what I needed to do, um, which I think is something that, that deserves unpacking. I mean, it, yes, it got me to, and I get, you could, you could argue and, and, and I think this is where the hero identity, actually, this is the very first time in a hundred, over a hundred episodes we've ever gotten to this point seriously is where the, the hero has that point of weakness. But it, in a sense, it comes it, on the surface, it looks as something positive, right? And we see this in the world today of this grinding approach and just put more in and more time. And even though it's a detriment on the surface, well, it fostered money or status or whatever it is, but it was at the, the cost of your internal dialogue and how you actually felt internally through that process, uh, which I think is worth unpacking. I, I do believe now, and this is what I'm trying to share today, is there's there's healthier ways to go about it. How do we encourage people to take that healthier, still work hard, still be your best, still be a leader, et cetera, et cetera, but not through the negative motivators that can sometimes push us through. Um, so I really appreciate you saying that because it's, it's again, the first time we've, we've said, hey, look, it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. And it was actually through sometimes a negative motivator that allowed me, allowed me. Do you remember when that changed in your story and your journey? Do you remember the moment? I think it's ongoing. I think, I don't think there's a, a land, like there's no destination, right? It's all journey. And every day is a new commitment to everything you're talking about and how, why it's so important that you're doing what you're doing and creating these spaces so that people can continue to open their minds, which is what theater is, right? Just like an opportunity for people to continue to gain empathy because we, I think there are times when it's important to inspire but there are also times to educate people that disabled, the disabled community are living exactly the same life you are. And it's not inspiring, you know, uh, on, on certain levels. So I guess the, the phrase that's spinning around these days is inspiration porn, right? That like everybody's kind of um, a lot of my disabled advocate friends are suffering in a way from um, this idea that uh, that that we're being viewed through an ableist lens, like that the center of everything is ableism and anything outside that is inspiring. But that keeps the disabled person on the outside. And so we're being compared to, oh, look, he's walking to the mall with shorts on. Oh, isn't that inspiring? He's just walking to the mall. Like, do you know what I mean? And so like, and so it's, 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 um, it's not good or bad. It's just food for thought, I think, to, to continue to open the minds that like, as long as we're looking at people who are different than us um, through like the bullseye being able-bodied, then we haven't, then we have to keep having these conversations and keep continuing to raise awareness that like, um, that that's not the case. (laughs) 
inspiration porn. I haven't heard that term, but it definitely packs a punch. Like I get it. It's like, it's, it's also the idea. I think the, the reality of, of things is we've also, if you look around, we have a, a world, I think that is, I think a lot of people could agree that it's somewhat, we need to improve our, our resolve and any little bit of inspiration seems like this incredible feat because we have this assumption that life is this smooth journey. And it's about this income and this car and this family and these amount of kids, et cetera. We, we, that, we've made that assumption so that any little challenge is, no, wow, that's so inspiring, which is, a, which is where you look at the, the, the heroic philosophy at its core is that the willingness to go into the darkest of spaces because that's where you're going to find the light. That's not the common narrative of inspiration we're seeing today right? That's not where we're, we're really diving into things. So anyways, I, I think your message is so timely and, and powerful. And because I, I, I almost wonder sometimes that could be condescending to the individual. I would, I would think for that, oh, you're so inspiring for doing this. And the, I'm sure someone like yourself, the look at your track record of life and what you've done. It's like, you don't, I don't know what, what's your opinion when someone does that for you. Well, I'm always, I'm always flattered on behalf of the people who made it possible. I don't take credit for any of it. I am the sum of the parts of the people who remain in my life to hold me up and, 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 you know, listen and care. And, and so if I receive that feedback, it is always, my gratitude is always on behalf of the doctor who said yes. And the nurse who said yes, but also the friend who said like, whatever they say, you know, just like the support system, the safety net of, of, of people that we, um, that I cherish. So, but, but it is about education and it's about having these conversations with people like you. And it's just about letting people know that, um, you know, if someone's in a wheelchair, maybe they don't want to talk about being in a wheelchair. So maybe sending your kid over to sit like under the, kind of umbrella of, oh, this is good for my child to learn about being transparent with someone with a disability, um, sending them over to talk about like what happened and blah, blah, blah. Like they're not being paid to teach you in this moment and maybe they don't feel like it. So you don't send someone over, you don't send your kid over to the pregnant lady to find out how the pregnant lady got pregnant. You don't send the kid over to the guy with no hair to ask why he has no hair. If they're asking about that, do you know what I mean? And so it just feels like there's a lot of room. That's one example, right? But there's a lot of room and a lot of ways to educate ourselves and our families about um, humanity, just humanity. And, and inclusion is such a, such a wonderful current topic, you know, um, disability is, is part of that conversation. Um, it's the last frontier of the conversation. I, um, we say often, um, but it, it, uh, yeah, we're just like you. <laughs> you put that so well. I had this conversation in an episode ago with Mark Fraser when we were talking about race, you know, that conversation of inclusion. And it's this, it's this paradox because you want you at some points need to talk about it to be like, okay, 
There's differences amongst humanity, but at the same time, it's still humanity. And there's differences that exist, you know, brown hair, blonde hair. We don't talk about that that often, right? So on and so forth is that humanity and from a bird's eye view, hey, we come in all shapes and sizes, differences, abilities. And I think to be quite honest, and this is my own bias, of course, to talk about things through the lens of heroism in a journey is, I would say, more beneficial than the specific differences we have. Like, it's just the, this is the journey I took. Hey, this is how I grew up. This is what I did. And regardless of my, you know, that I did this this way because I didn't have the use of, or because my parents came from this culture, whatever, let's talk about the journey and learn from each other that way, as opposed to just the hyper-focus on, because what we see today is, as you alluded to, I, I want to go learn about their differences and then I'm gone. Then I'm leaving. I'm getting my, what I need out of it and I'm gone. Mm-hmm as opposed to let's dive in and get to know each other about the journey we're all on as a collective humanity, which I love the term used because that's amazing. That, that humanity side is, I think to, needs to be more of the conversation. I, I loved the things you were saying about theater and performance, obviously because it comes down to storytelling, which is very much how heroism and philosophy is, is embedded into people's minds and lives. But before we get there, is there any other message that, a part of your, uh, again, going back to your journey and, and the power of your story. Uh, is there anything that you wanted to share that that may be a, a positive lesson for people that you went through to to get to where you are today? Oof, <laughs> a loaded question. Um, I, I would say what comes up immediately is is the the idea, kind of spinning on what you just said, that we can't compartmentalize. We we can't, for the sake of our own comfort, box that's what disabled is or that's what that is or that's what that is. like there is such a huge spectrum of the lived experience of someone who falls under you know the category of disabled that i like even today i'm not speaking for the disabled community i know enough about the disabled community to know that the the the, the differences we share some similarities resilience being you know a, a common thread of all um, people that you're speaking to, I'm sure. Um, optimism, you know, there's, there's things I look to, but other than that, man, like you can't, as you said, tick a box and be like, Oh, she spoke to the girl in the wheelchair. We know everything we need to know about the girl in the wheelchair. Like, <laughs> um, so, so that's a big part of my message is just to, you know, um, it is a case by case thing and every single human has a different DNA and every single human has something really powerful to teach and to learn. So if, if we just viewed each other that way, like if we just looked at each other and was like, Oh, there's a teacher, you know, why is this happening for me? Not why is this happening to me? Why is this happening? You know, even things that we see as negative, I really try to immediately switch the lens and you're like, okay, all right, here's the lesson. Stay teachable, stay the student. Like this is not going. 2021 is not going as I planned. Where's the, you know, what am I supposed to learn? What, how can I continue to grow? and teach because if we're just taking as you said and not giving it back and not like allowing other people into the learning that we're having then 
then I think that's when depression becomes real. Such a good way to put it because it's a two-way street connection and love and purpose and meaning is, is it very much a two-way street? And then when it's always just coming in, coming in, coming in, uh, that's yeah. becomes lonely. Right. So amazing. Amazing. Jeez. We've already covered so much. I, I, this is, this is cool for me because let's just put it this way. I know very little about theater and, and I, and what I'm realizing is I'm actually going to love the performance side, the execution side, the storytelling side of it. So I'm so excited to learn. Um, let, let's start off with, because I, the term I use when it comes to the ideal leader, the ideal performer, the, very much adopted from heroic philosophy is the, the middle ground or the perfect balance between truth and love. So the truth is the hard realizations and uh, concepts in life, you know, the data, the performance, the numbers, the execution. And then there's the love side that helps, helps soften the blow of those stark realizations. And, you know, an example is I'll use an athlete example. Well, they have to perform. They have numbers. Everyone's watching them. That's the truth. The love is that they have an opportunity to play this game or play or be a part of this sport. They have the opportunity to interact with people. And when you can have the balance of that truth and love, you you're able to, perform. You're able to be a great person, a great teammate. Uh, We look at this in leaders, the leader that can balance the truth. Hey, we need to be better, but the love of saying, but I think we're the best team for the job. I think we're the best group for the job. And when you can have that balance, anyways, I'm going to keep rambling, but you had said something that aligned with that. And I was wondering where you came to the uh, conclusion that you have to balance execution. You had said time logic, right? Again, that's kind of the truth. But then also you have to balance it with the creativity, abstraction, and intuitiveness. And I was like, he he gets it. He gets it. So where where did you come to that that uh, idea? First of all, you would make a great coach. I understand why you make <laughs> such a great coach. What an amazing philosophy. Um, I I would attribute it to mentors. To, to just uh, having been, having placed myself in rooms with people who I respected to see, to, to see how they did what they did so that I could create my own uh, equation. Um, sometimes that meant seeing, like deciding not to do it that way you know like it's 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 a study it's a study but it's a human study and it's not something you can i read a lot about all the you know reading's helpful but it's nowhere near as impactful as actually seeing the energy exchange of where as you say that that communication is coming from and the balance between fear and love the balance between ego and generosity the balance between i'm going to take myself out of this mix and just be as honest heart to heart with this person in the hopes that you're modeling uh what they're going to like it's a top-down scenario always isn't it i mean and so we're 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 always looking 360 degrees to the people around us to try to um uh figure out where we fit and how we fit and what the you know what the rules are at the grocery store anywhere you know we're always trying to assess we're constantly taking in stimulus and assessing it and then responding as a result of the assessment i think so that's a long answer to say that um, 
I, I was really lucky from a very young age to be in um, rehearsal rooms and on stages with people that I um, could exploit <laughs> as a student. You know, I just exploited their their methods. Amazing. And, and you say that, and I don't know if this was directly related to this idea of the balancing that logic and time with the creativity and, and intuitiveness, but it's, there's, you said a dance in your head. Yeah. I, I really like that idea. What is that dance in your head? Like during practice rehearsal, during execution? Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's about uh, being present. It's really, I mean, I meditate. That's my thing. I'm a, I'm, I'm a Reiki practitioner. I, 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 uh, I rely heavily on breath work to kind of come to a place of like, that's not true. That's not true. That I'm not, nope, nope, nope. What's true. And it just allows, um, it allows me to, to know, I guess the next right thing. That's, that's, that's how you, I manage, uh, multiple responsibilities, which is what my job is, is to, um, be practical and meet budgets and timelines and, and, you know, and be compassionate and creative and open-hearted and open-minded. And, um, so, uh, that's for me, the dance, the dance is the next right thing is to, is to, um, be left brained. The next right thing is that I need to communicate this schedule and I need to let people know who are getting the schedule that we have to stay on schedule or we're not going to make it. And like that might not feel loving in the moment, but in the big picture, I know that that is the most loving thing because everyone's going to meet a deadline and we're going to, you know, not panic the day before we, right. So it's a schedule or it's a budget or I have to tell somebody they don't have enough money to do the thing they want to do or, you know, um, so that's just the next right thing. And then, and then big breath, what's next? Oh, I got to go play with my dog. Like I got to go play with my dog because I, I just, I just know that that's my, I got to hike with that dog because there's something in the woods that's going to impact, you know? So was that, was that the right answer? <laughs> Did that answer um, your question? <laughs> the right, geez, there's no, there's no right or wrongs. That's for sure. That is, that's awesome. And I think what you pointed out too is, is we, when we use the word love, we, I think one of the, when I say it, I need to work on, on that. It's not the Hollywood concept of love either. Right. It's, I had a, I was having this conversation with a friend of mine and, and he had talked about how the, the most he learned in sport was this young coach in, in football. And that it was very military like, and he said, but I, it was the most I ever improved. It was the most fun I had. And then he, and he has to justify, even though it was the military approach and, and that military approach doesn't mean there's not love because there isn't pink hearts everywhere. And it's not everyone hugging. And that, that could be like what you just said, that that love can be shown of, we need to get this done. Cause this is for the greater good of all of us, because we're going to execute on something powerful. That's, that's love for the people that's love for the craft. And, and I think that's a, a key point to be made, which, which you alluded to, which I think is amazing. And, and, and then you can, you know, if, if there's a dog nearby, 100%, that box always needs to be checked of, of taking the dog for a hike or playing with the dog. That's for sure. You touched on, on touched on it earlier. You used the word fear and control as a leader, a director, you, the, one of your roles is, is 
helping manage that fear in, in the, I assume this is outwardly and with the people around you. And and I believe you'd said in one of your videos that uh, one of your roles is to reduce stress as a leader in the leadership role. What, what do you mean by that? You know, is that, I I don't think it's from this counselor approach, you know, which I'm, which I'm in school for what, yeah. What is it that you mean? I mean, uh, when people behave out of character, they're afraid it's, is my philosophy. They, they, they're, they're manifesting fear in some way that is coming out as judgment or attack or, or, or just a, you know, aggression. And and so I just enjoy having the lens of immediately trying to get to, I see this, this isn't who you actually are. What can I do to to calm the fear what are you you're afraid of looking and this is you know this isn't just theater this is life like what what has triggered you to why are you having a bad day and can i help and if i can't or you don't want me to i'm going to leave space for you to just have that bad day and i'm not going to take it personally and i know that it's not going to impact as you say the greater good um unless it's long, you know, but, but like that, that's, that's kind of what I mean by that is that, um, we're, we're either operating from one of those two places. Right. And, 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 and it's insidious fears, insidious. It'll come out in so many weird ways. Um, and, and, and so rather than me jump to a value judgment or take it personally, like what's, or, or like judge, right. Judge back. Cause that's exponential and it just becomes, you know, when people leave the room, um, I, I just try to never have anyone leave my room, <laughs> you know, without feeling supported and seen, um, and heard that like, yeah, I feel that I accept that. That's cool. Um, when you feel like talking about it, let's talk about it. And if it's now great. Right. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now getting into the, the storytelling side, um, you say a lot of powerful things and one is creating and preserving magic, which I, I think is so powerful uh, in your experience. We we've talked about this a lot so far, but conveying meaning, you know, whether it's, whether it's just to tell a story or to induce behavioral change, um, you know, grab someone and pull them in. You're a storyteller in a sense. That's, that's what you do. Uh, what is you can take this wherever you want. What is the best way? How should someone approach uh, conveying meaning to, to an individual or a group? Just be present. It's that simple. And what is the process to, to ensure that when telling a story, when try, when you're performing, that, that your team is present, when your group, everyone's coming together and that everyone's present, how do you ensure that that happens in your in your performances preparation. See that I love how simple those answers are because that is what the approach is of heroic minds is we love to overcomplicate things in the world, in life, because it can sell, it can sound better than it is. The list goes on of reasons why, but let's be present. Let's prepare. And I feel it comes back to, that's why I loved your uh, analogy or metaphor of the dance of like, okay, you know, wide lens. This is, these are all the things we do. 
Now let's take a step back in, do the next best thing, which I think is so, that's so simple, so powerful. Let's be present. And so do you do a lot of meditation work with your, with your teams or does that come through the, the practice of, or the craft or art of dance and theater itself? Um, I, I do, when I teach, I do, when I teach, I, it's not really meditation. It's more breath work. It's more, you know, when I teach, um, I, I teach college kids or who like whoever that is, uh, I, I, I'm a real believer in, um, as an actor, you need to be present to this situ- this unbelievable situation usually, right? It's, it's, it's an imaginary situation, but we're asking you to be real inside that imaginary situation and to be present to the surprises that are awaiting you in this story, believably surprised by this thing that you already know. So, so that is really about just allowing yourself to kind of backtrack into I know nothing I know nothing I'm entering I'm walking on this wherever I am and I don't know anything and so the mindfulness that's required for that I think is is for me the only path to be able to do that believably is to have a mindful practice in your life you know so so that you have those tools at that the ready like you're like oh I need a deep breath there I am, you know, but like, it takes practice that takes practice. And so I don't think I, I, you know, I think the preparation needs to come before the presence, you know, before that, um, it's, it's a skill. It's a, it's a skill. Mindfulness is, is a practice. You don't just wake up. I mean, we do, we wake up mindfully. That's when our minds are most porous, but then we turn on our phones and, and, Everything gets scrambled. So to unscramble that, we need to do some work, I think. I'm not preaching, by the way. I hope this doesn't sound preachy. I don't, I don't, I, everyone, listen, you do you. Like everyone live your life. I'm not, I'm not selling anything. I'm not, you know, I'm just letting you know. Uh, yeah, purchase, purchase your DVD at <laughs> so-and-so.com. Right. <laughs> um, no, you, you, well, the, here's what I love about what you're saying is, there's preparation involved in being present. And we've taken the Eastern philosophy of uh, meditation and mindfulness and skewed it to benefit ourselves. And it's become a treatment to the way we're living. Mm-hmm. Whereas that is not what it's, if you look at the, the, the approach in the Eastern philosophies where it was generated, um, it's not this tool of, oh, I'm so anxious. I'm going to, it's a way of living. It's a way of life. It's a practice. It's, it's not this tool that's, oh my gosh, I worked so hard this week to make this much money. I need to do my, I need to get on my calm app now. And <laughs> so I can actually sleep. Right. Whereas, Hey, you want to be present. It's a, it's a, a practice and a ha- not, I don't like using the word habit as much. It sounds fabricated. It's a practice, a way of living. Uh, here's a question. And this is, this is an opportunity for you to pump your tires. What have you seen in your work, in your presentations on the power of storytelling? Um, I, I, as a director, I have the benefit of sitting at the back of the theater during a show. I sit against the back wall, wherever there's a chair, you know, it's always at the back. Um, and I don't watch the show at a certain point, I don't watch the show. I watch the audience because I need to learn from them what's working and what's not. And so I do that through many senses. I, I can hear laughter and applause. Um, and that guides what needs to happen on stage. Like if it's not getting the thing that 
I think is possible, then that's going to impact the work that we do on stage. Um, uh, but sometimes it's body language. Sometimes they'll just like, for me to see shoulders go down and back, like within 15 minutes of a show means that everyone has done their job and that, so sure there are emails and there are conversations about, you know, the impact of the show, but for me, the greater joy and reward is the collective people coming there to, you know, be in a community of strangers in the dark, you know, and, and collectively you'll see them have the same physical response, like shoulders, literally once they feel safe, once they feel like, oh, this is worth my time, then they'll sit back in the chair, shoulders will go down, the hands will like go into their lap, like the phones are off, you know, it's just, it's such a, uh, you know, there's, it's just such a, you're going to make me miss it and it's going to make me emotional. But um, when it's done right, then they start, I mean, there's even statistics to say that they start breathing together, like that their heart rate becomes similar within 20 minutes. Um, so there is science behind it too. There's science behind uh, what's, yeah, what's possible. But the hope is that they're going to gain empathy subconsciously they're going to gain empathy for having felt safe with each other and hopefully if the show's written well they'll learn something so the conversation in the car on the way home is going to continue our work and maybe the next day at work someone's going to talk about the thing they saw and that's going to you know so it's deep for me and it doesn't have to be deep for you like it doesn't have to be deep for the you know people listening even like it, it, uh, it's just what, what motivates me to, to continue to unravel the mystery of it. Yeah, of course you have that connection to your craft. Of course it's that deep. And of course it's that powerful. I think it comes back to what you said at the start, that it's a healing art. It sounds like both physiologically, behaviorally, right? Having those discussions on the way home in a world where there's a lot, a lot of different modalities, what a natural way to have that feeling effect. And it, it seems you're, you're showing it as much, even more than, than when you said it at, at the beginning is a responsibility. You said you feel you have this responsibility. Um, that's a very heroic thing to say at the, a responsibility for, for, because I think it usually comes down to, and I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but something greater right? There's a, what, what responsibility is it? Is it specific? What is that? So you, you, you alluded to that at the start. I mean, what is that that you have a responsibility for? What is it that, that that feels like? That people feel like they belong, that people come to laugh together and cry together and be amazed together. And, you know, whether they're eight or 80 get to transcend the email box, transcend what happened to them today. My responsibility is always to the person who's at their first show. I, I tell every cast I work with that someone in the audience is at their first show. And our responsibility is to have them come back. And there's someone at their last show. Guaranteed. And so we need to 
honor that. Resi- I'm going to quote you again. Resiliency is fueling our entire endeavor. Uh, what does that mean to you? <clears throat> well, you know, there's a broad answer to that. And then there's the current, like April 16th answer to that. Um, when we come back, um, people are going to need us to help them figure out how to navigate um, what they've been through. We've, we've been through trauma. This has been traumatic. Um and people are going to come to theater as they always have to be guided about how to navigate that. And, and, and they're going to look to us for tools. And sometimes again, it's not, you know, all serious. Sometimes the tool is we need to laugh. We need to clap. We need to, you know, um, celebrate. We need to be together with, um, with with people who are only the only vent the only shared Venn diagram circle is that we came to the theater. And that that intrinsically um creates empathy because we made an agreement to come to this building and see this thing. And so whether people are conscious of that or not, they do leave with whew. I, I have nothing in common with that person except the fact that we just laughed at those same jokes, you know? So, um, long answer. And the other part of that answer to make it even longer is that resiliency, I think is, is what is the most, um, common, uh, uh, one of the most common things about everybody on the planet. We've all, it's one of the greatest joys of, of my, of my advocacy work is that people, if it's, you know, a public and live, they'll come up to me and they'll immediately tell me their story about their granddaughter or their niece or them. And the thing that they went through, because I've given them permission by sharing my story for them to tell me their story. And so it allows me to have an x-ray lens into the fact that everybody has a story. Everybody deserves a podcast episode. Like everybody, you know this. You know this. Could could like, oh, yeah. yeah could tell you um, what they've been through and how they got through it. And almost always, it's um, support. You know. I don't know if you wanted to conclude on anything. Are there any things that you need to share with people that you need to give a shout out for? Well, obviously, we have uh, listeners from all over, but we also have listeners locally. I don't know if there's anything you want to. Uh, share before we before we conclude here <laughs> um deep gratitude to you for letting me um swim in in these thoughts um and for the selflessness of the work that you're doing because education is the answer period period either we continue to grow and listen and learn or we stay stuck um, so thank you for your work. Um, I don't know if I've even said Drayton Entertainment yet. Have I? Have I even said that? No. Okay. Well, there's the plug. I'm the associate artistic director at Drayton Entertainment, and um, and you know we'll 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 be back. So we look forward to um, to your your continued 
and maybe new support. Um, but that's, that's, that's the, that's, yeah. We'll be the last back, you know, theater is going to be the last back. So we're going to need you. We're going to need as many people as we can get to fire the engine back up and, um, and continue this work that we've talked about today. That brings us to the end of another Heroic Minds podcast. If you want to keep the conversation going, feel free to send me an email. My email is always in the description of these episodes. And if you want to check out more of David Connolly's work, his email and website are in the description of this episode. I encourage you to do so. And if you're local, encourage you to support Drayton Entertainment. Alrighty, I'm Ben Finelli. This is the Heroic Minds podcast. We'll talk again soon.